0: Hello there, happy new year and welcome to the Greenfluence and Recalibrate podcast series. The podcast that talks about the work of founders and investors in the global south. From Recalibrate, we have Pavina, who has over a decade of experience in the energy mobilization sector and is excited to be delving in deep into the stories of founders and investors in the global south. From Greenfluence, we have this, our co-founder, Angela, our marketing officer, and myself, Shri, the podcast lead. We are all so keen for you to tune into our first episode. To kick things off, join Viz and Pavina chat with Marie. Marie is a venture builder with experience in early stage startups and corporate innovation and has worked with over 20 entrepreneurs to help them build their businesses. Marie is a founding partner in WaveMaker Impact, the first VC climate tech venture builder in SEA. Buckle in for episode one.
1: Hello, everyone. So climate tech is one of the most trendiest words in the startup world these days, and everyone wants a slice of the pie. However, unfortunately, a disproportionate amount of funding actually goes to marginalized groups such as people of color and also women. We want to bring more awareness regarding funders and investors in this space and also the global south. So we'd like to give you a warm welcome to the GreenFluence and the Recalibrate podcast series um, featuring our team at GreenFluence and also Pavina. Over the next few episodes, we'll be speaking with amazing founders and investors and changemakers in this space and talk about all the amazing solutions in climate tech and renewables and much more. So sit back, relax and enjoy the show. I'll pass it over to you, Pavina.
2: Thanks. Hi, everyone. I'm the founder of Recalibrate and we're very excited today to have Marie on the call today. Um, Marie is a venture builder with experience in early-stage startup and corporate innovation and has worked for 20 years to help build businesses. In the last two years, Marie has exclusively been launching climate tech startups in Southeast Asia and is very passionate about increasing the pipeline of women founders in the sector. She is currently the founding partner at WaveMaker Impact, the first climate tech VC venture builder in Southeast Asia. Prior to that, she led the Venture Builder Program at Onji Factory and has worked in various institutions like KPMG's digital and innovation team. Marie, thank you
3: so much for joining us today. We're very excited to have you here. Thanks so much, Viz and uh, and Pavina. Really, really glad to be here and and happy to have the opportunity to share more about our platform at WaveMaker Impact and also how we see the future of climate tech evolving in the region.
2: Wonderful. And you've just come back from COP27 in Sharm El Sheikh. And this year, particularly, there's been a big focus on mobilizing climate finance for developing countries and the global south and we've just seen an announcement that they're going to set up a fund to procure financing to help the global south adapt to climate change and to implement mitigation measures and also there's been a big focus on loss and damage financing. We're really excited with hearing your perspective on what the experience was like and what were the key takeaways.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, this was my first COP. So it was all just a huge sort of learning experience for me. Uh, it was also the first time that Singapore had uh, its inaugural country pavilion. Um, so, you know, we were, we were tremendously honored to be a part of that and to be able to contribute uh, to hopefully, you know, Singapore's role in helping to steward the, the green transition for, for Southeast Asia and, and, and beyond. Um, In terms of my, my experience, I mean, it was just, it was overwhelming, right? I mean, it's probably the biggest global conference that I've been to, you know, there's so many different types of organizations there from, of course, you know, the, the, the origins of COP is essentially government negotiations and, and negotiations around one of the most pressing global and you know existential crises uh, for us as, as like a, a human race. So it was firstly, you know, incredibly, um, incredibly eye opening and special to, to even be a part of that process and, and, and to get a flavor uh, for how some of these decisions are made at a global and intergovernmental level. So I think that's kind of the first sort of takeaway was just you know, wow, you know the amount of effort and preparation and consideration that that is required to really come together to create a global and, and international solutions um, for for the climate crisis. So I think that that that's my first key takeaway. I think the second takeaway was, um, you know, it was it was amazing to see. How uh, governments, corporates, NGOs, activist groups were sort of coming together and coalescing around the challenge of climate change. And I think that's absolutely required if if we're going to be able to to really get to where we need to get to in, in, in terms of, um, you know, our, our pathway to to decarbonization. One of one of the things that, that I that I guess all of us who've been in the climate space feel, Um, And it was sobering to to see it so so obviously as a part of COP is is really that, you know, the 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 target of avoiding 1.5 degree uh, temperature rise is probably at this point out of reach. You know, I don't know that we've we've done enough um, at all levels of 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 society to to really get there. So, so that was a very, very sobering kind of takeaway. I think the upside to that is that, everybody knows that and acknowledges that. And rather than feeling a sense of kind of um, doom or dread, it it was actually quite galvanizing. You know, here is a big kind of checkpoint or stage gate which we've not been able to meet. and And then, you know, I think we're all aware of 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 the outcomes of that. You know, for example, in our region, uh, you know, a 1.5 degree temperature rise in our current kind of infrastructure setup means that you know three of the largest cities in Southeast Asia will be underwater by 2050 if we don't do anything about it. Um, and and you know, there's 120 million people in Southeast Asia that depend on coastal regions um, for their livelihoods. So this is a big um, it's a big challenge in terms of livelihoods, in 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 terms of a humanitarian challenge. And, you know, potentially very disruptive to to our economic kind of systems and models that exist. I mean, you know, we we, we saw the impact of of COVID on on things sort of like food security. And it's something that I think for the first time, many of us in more developing countries felt quite keenly. You know, what happens when we aren't able to get some of the, the goods and access to services that we previously enjoyed and maybe didn't think much about? And, you know, what happens when prices rise? and and how does that affect people across the, the spectrum of society so i thought that it was good that the that, you know that the that the fact that the 1.5 was probably out of reach has galvanized so much kind of action and an intention to 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 genuinely create change so i think that was really good and i and i i, I think that the third sort of takeaway that i had from from cop ex, from my cop experience is that um that there is a real role that startups can play uh, in this. And and the reason for that is that, you know, carbon is incredibly distributed. It's physical and embedded. So I'll give you an example around rice cultivation, which is something that I'm looking at um, um, quite a lot these days uh, through our work at Wavemaker Impact. So rice is the second biggest driver of agricultural emissions globally. Um, It's it's the biggest in, in, in Asia. Uh, 90% of rice production happens in Asia. So this is something which requires an Asian solution enabled in, in order to tackle it. Um, if you look at it on a macro level, rice is 700 megatons of CO2 equivalent, you know, mostly from, from methane. But then when you break it down, that's owned by the 400 million farmers that cultivate rice in our region. And the vast majority of those are smallholders that um, cultivate you know, half a hectare of, of land on average. So these farmers each own less than two tons of this large global problem, right? So, so while top-down solutions are absolutely required and needed and policy change is so important, at the same time, there's an opportunity to, to kind of, you know, what if we could get um, on, a, on, a, on a smaller scale from a, a ground up kind of perspective, more more rice farmers to change their behavior, what would a scalable and profitable profitable model look like for that? And, you know, in theory, that's what venture knows how to do, right? Venture knows how to drive a large scale behavior change, knows how to drive scale through profitable and commercial solutions. And I think that was kind of one of the, 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 the takeaways that I had from COP was really, hey, you know, I think that there is a real role for startups and for the VC ecosystem to be a huge part of the of the solution of this and I, and I think for that from that perspective it was it was very inspiring personally.
1: Awesome. So many great insights Marie. Um I think it's it's really insightful that startups could make a huge impact and how you can work with corporates and governments and we've already seen so much funding into VC. I was just reading somewhere like a quarter of the total VC funding goes to climate tech. Um, and I think the other really interesting thing was the fact that we've accepted that 1.5 is going to happen but what can we do so it's good to see a lot of efforts in mitigation also also in terms of the loss and damage fund that Pavina mentioned and how a lot of developed countries have actually said yes we need to take more initiative on this um so he, yeah thanks for sharing that um I want to take it back a bit and really keen to understand what actually sh- shaped your interest in the space and in sustainability
3: so I, I think there's there's kind of two points. In my life, that hopefully resonate with with um, with with people who might be listening. So so the first story that I start with is um, I remember that when I was in the fourth grade, so I guess that's like when you're around ten. Um, you know, I was a part of uh, organizations like WWF and Sierra Club, um, and I was just really inspired by you know what could we do as individuals for the planet. So I managed in in the fourth grade to to kind of um, convince. A bunch of my friends to launch a campaign in our school to transition our school canteen away from styrofoam uh, containers into sort of paper paper um, packaging for 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 the the canteen kind of uh, food and beverage products. And the way that we did this was we managed to convince our fourth grade teacher to take us during recess. And, and and collect out of all of the, of the garbage bins around our school, all of these styrofoam containers, right? And so we were just picking them out of the garbage, and we, we put them into kind of like clear plastic bags, and we just parked it in front of the canteen office. Um, and we we, we we continued this campaign until the, the the canteen office decided to make a change. So I feel like in me, there was always this kind of like, climate activism you know personally what would i be able to do to 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 affect change um, and then i think what happened over time which is again hopefully a relatable story is that you just get caught up in so much other stuff you know you get caught up in school and then later you get caught up in 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 your career and you're in and you know following a particular trajectory or pathway and you sort of forget right the the kind of links um uh, to, to, to climate and, and then, you know, what we could personally do. Um, and, and so the next kind of big change point for me was, um, in 2017 when I had my son and so he's five now. Um, but I remember when I had him, I started to feel kind of this sort of like, what sort of world, what sort of opportunities am I going to be able to, to, to be in a position to leave for my son. Right. And, and, um, If I look at Singapore, which is where I'm from and and where I live at the moment, um, you know, everything that is amazing about Singapore, you know, our gorgeous kind of skyline, all of the economic progress, that's the story of the last 50 years. And okay, so my parents are not, you know, big, fancy tycoons. They weren't involved directly in this, but they can kind of tell me, you know, this is the legacy that we've left you. You know, we've left you in this in this prosperous, developed, healthy economic environment. And then I really started to think, what is my legacy going to be for my son? What am I gonna be able to say, hey, you know, this is what I, you know, what I leave to you, what I entrust to you. And then that, that just got a little bleak um, when I started to think about the trajectory that we are on and, and, and what the impact of climate change could do from, from something as, as simple as kind of economic opportunity or the ability to live in a, in a safe world that is conflict-free. Um, And I think what that prompted within me was a real desire to spend more of my personal and my professional time to do something about that. Um, And then on the flip side, I, you know, I sat back and I thought, okay, well, how do I contribute to this? Because I'm not a scientist. I'm I'm probably not going to invent the next direct air carbon capture technology. You know, I'm not a I'm not a government person. So. I'm not going to be the one that's, you know, creating the, the, you know, the next loss and damage fund. That's probably out of, out of my reach. Um, and at the time, the only thing that I, I would say that I knew anything about was sort of early stage startups, um, particularly in the B2B space. And I, I think what that sparked was this initial kind of inkling of an idea, you know, what if I could, you know, help build startups that decarbonized our world? You know, what would that look like? Um, and then I was very fortunate to join NG Factory. So NG is a large French utility. At one point, it was the largest private generator of electricity in the world. Um, and then along with another one of my founding partners for Wavemaker Impact, um, you know, uh, I was part of the leadership team uh, that, that helped to run NG Factory, which was NG's venture arm in APAC. Um, and there we were experimenting with different models of innovation, but the one that, 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 that uh, I was looking after was really the Venture Build program. And there, the idea was, you know, what if you could take a white space um, and, and you could focus on that space to try and determine what are the venture opportunities that exist within decarbonization? And then how might an entrepreneur come on board to, to help influence that? So, so that, that was really kind of like the time where I, I really sort of got you know, much more a deep rooted understanding of, of the climate tech space. And also, I would add on, you know, it helped me focus right on on the spaces that I felt that I could have an influence on. So what we do at Wavemaker Impact is we focus very much on business model innovation. Um, So when you look at the trajectory to, to net zero by 2050, what we need to do in this decade is half the global carbon budget. So this this is gonna be done with the technology that we already have today. You know, the the sexy stuff that you hear about with DAC and with green hydrogen and nuclear fusion, that's not gonna come online on a commercial basis for at least another 10 years. So what do we do in the meantime? And and that's where I thought, okay, you know, this 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 is a space where it's not about deep tech, it's about business model innovation, where you have to understand the technology, yes, but more importantly, you have to understand what are the drivers that will enable behavioral change or what will drive the adoption of the existing technology that we have. And and that was a space where I felt like, you know, I personally, but also then venture as as kind of a broader um, category could have a real influence.
1: That's amazing. I think so many interesting points. And I think you made a really good point, Marie, about how, you know, like your role as a VC, as a venture builder is to sort of focus on a little bit about the tech, but also around the behavioral changes and how we can get that tech how we can invest in it so it's a good long term solution, but also focus on the present. Um, and also about your story in fourth grade, I definitely was not as productive back then. So hats off to you. And I really like the story about your son and how that meant that it meant more to you. It had more of like a personal take. Um, so really interesting to hear that. Um, and I think it's just so interesting how when I ask guests when they compare the start of their career, I guess to where they are now, how it changes so much. And I found it really interesting that you focused on politics and East Asian studies at university. So just wondering just around university, what was the sort of like career that you envisioned for yourself and how did that change over time? And how does it compare to what you're doing now?
3: You know, I don't think that when I decided to do politics and East Asian studies, it was like a very career focused decision. Um, I, I, um, you know, so many of my friends now, you know, they did engineering or business, you know, like these like hard skills that have like definite value from a career perspective. But I think there's, I think there's, there's, there's sort of the reason that I went into politics uh, and East Asian studies, and then you know how that's really helped me. Okay, so the first thing is why did I go into it, and it was because I loved it. And and uh, you know, I think there's there's actually there's nothing wrong with finding spaces and times in your life to pursue things just for the genuine joy of doing it um, and that's 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 a feeling that that I feel so strongly with now at wavemaker impact it's just the real joy and purpose that I find from 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 you know pursuing something that is impactful and meaningful to me um, and so so you know I guess if if anyone's kind of considering what's the right decision for them at this point in time, I think kind of how you personally feel and the energy that you bring to something is, is, is really valuable. And then I think the second point is, you know, how has this helped me? Which is maybe not as, as direct as learning a hard skill. Um, and, and I think what, what doing a liberal arts degree does is it teaches you how to tell stories and how to ch- shape narratives. So, so even in in a liberal arts context, data points are everywhere. Um, But, you know, the, the challenge is to, to, to take all of those data points and then to, to shape a narrative that is, that is, that resonates with, with, you know, whether it's your professor that's reading your paper or your, your investor that, you know, you're pitching to, um, or even yourself, when you're trying to understand for yourself, you know, how does this. Um, the startup or this company that I'm building contribute to a wider vision or purpose. So, so I think that was a skill set that was, that was kind of honed in me that I've, I've actually used quite a lot without knowing, you know, at the time that I was being explicitly trained in, in that particular skill. I can definitely resonate with that
2: because um, I went to uh, policy grad school as well and Um, I chose not to do the MBA because I wanted to follow my heart. And at the time I was very interested in understanding, well, how can we mobilize and leverage the public sector to solve hard problems, right? Like sustainability and climate change. And I think what it does for you, like what it does for us um, as students is that it gives us a different perspective to how you can solve real world challenges. And so much of climate change is about, systemic thinking and action, but on a global scale, right? And we've got this complex problem, but we have to break it down into minor micro scale problems and actions that we can take. So really like that um, you found that the liberal arts degree obviously allowed you to shape uh, your thinking around how to solve climate change. Wanted to um, come back to your point earlier about um, how half of the solutions that we need uh, to solve climate change are available to us today. And it's really about business model innovation, right? And I was reading the other day uh, that according to the International Energy Agency, 400 of the technologies that we need um, to decarbonize and get to net zero by 2050 are actually still in R&D phase. So your focus is very much on, well, how can you help startups that have achieved proof of concept for technologies and take it to market. Um, So can we understand a bit more about the investment thesis in WaveMaker and like, what do you think are the key technologies that we need to focus on in this decade so that we position ourselves to get to net zero by 2050? Or if you believe that that can happen earlier.
3: Yeah, so so I think a couple of things. So first is WaveMaker Impact is a a VC-backed venture builder in the climate tech space. So what that means is that um, we typically only invest in companies which we've, we've helped to build from scratch with experienced entrepreneurs. Um, so, 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 you know, really our, our thesis is around helping entrepreneurs find um, what we call hundred by hundred opportunities. So companies with the ability to bait hundred megatons of CO2E and be hundred million dollar businesses at scale um, in 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 our region, um, and uh, so so in order to do that, we built a climate uh, we built a carbon map of the biggest drivers of emissions in the region. So the five biggest drivers of emission in, in Southeast Asia are, are one land use change, and and then secondly agriculture and in just, and interestingly they're very closely linked. So the biggest driver of land use change is actually uh, agriculture. Um, Then it's energy in the built environment, uh, industrial processes, and a distant fifth is transportation. So, Viz, to your point about, you know, climate tech funding kind of going through a boom period, you know, 60% of climate tech funding goes into transportation and e-mobility solutions, which is only about 12, 13% of the emissions in our region. Whereas areas like land use change, it's still, you know, it's still very underinvested. And there aren't that many solutions out there. So, so in terms of our thesis, um, you know, it's, it's really about looking at, at the technology that we have available today. So I'll give you an example. Um, if you look at direct air carbon capture, and I think it's that Climeworks project uh, in Finland. Um, and uh, they're hoping that in 10 years time, uh, they'll be down to three hundred dollars a ton for carbon removal. Now, at the same time, you've got technology like like biochar, right, which is is basically taking agricultural waste uh, products and locking the carbon in through through a process of pyrolysis that then can be, you know, sequestered in soil, for example, and has tremendous benefits for soil health. That's currently sitting at thirty dollars a ton. Um, So, you know, we can do quite a lot with the technology that we have today Um, and, and it's not to say that the other technology is not important. I think it's, it's tremendously valuable. And I'm, I'm very, very glad that there are people who are smarter than me that are investing their time and effort into that. But I think there's quite a lot that we can do today. And I think that's, that's the point that we try to, to get across to the entrepreneurs that we work with. Um, you know, you don't have to be a scientist. Uh, you don't have to have, you know, 10, 15 years of experience in kind of deep tech spaces in order to make a, a an impact today. So, I'll give you an example of a bill that we're working on right now. So, here we're working with a founder who kind of built an FMB sort of empire. So, very successful, very successful founder in an offline business space, right? But, you know, super capable in terms of being able to build and scale companies and and teams. Um, And and he's now building a business that's accelerating the deployment of, of solar in residential homes across Southeast Asia. And what he's found is that, you know, the typical way, of selling solar is, you know, to kind of door knock, right? To kind of go into existing homeowners um, and sort of pitch them solar. And, and there the take up rate, especially in our region, tends to be low because it's a high, it's, it's a high friction process, right? You've got to be able to, you've got to be willing to sign a long-term agreement. There's got a CapEx that has to has to be funded. Um, and then there's just the hassle, right? That you have to go through as a consumer to, to, to put solar on your roof and then to switch and, and so on. Um, so what 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 Xinyao, the founder, is doing is developing solar mortgages. So he's worked out that, you know, the, the, the least friction, you know, the way to create a frictionless process around this is to tie the adoption of solar to the point at which somebody's buying a home, right? So, you know, they're buying a home, by the time you know they're, they're ready to move in, solar's already on their roof. And then they pay, you know, they pay part of the lease for that solar system just through their mortgage facility. And so it's very seamless and there's loads of benefits to the client in terms of, you know, protecting them against, you know, increases in their energy, uh, their their energy bills. And and then it's completely frictionless from their perspective. Right. Um, They just get a home with solar on it. And so that that's what we're looking for. Right. These kind of business model innovation pieces. Um, And this company actually looks much more like a fintech than a solar company. Right, that 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 enables the, the the mass and scalable adoption of the existing technology that we have today, but maybe in a new way um, that isn't being addressed by some of the you know these four hundred technologies that we need in order to 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 meet our goals around energy transition.
1: Great, thanks, Marie. I th- I I think that point about like business model innovation is really interesting and the idea of solar mortgages because even in Australia, solar energy is one of the huge ways we can make a huge renewable shift because of the amount of sunlight we have. And I think the other really cool thing is that it gives people who may not have the funds or the, or the economic power to actually like pay for sort of, to actually pay for solar panels for them to access it. And I think that's really what we're trying to do, like give more more opportunity for people who may not have the funds to make a transition in, in their personal lives, even for their businesses and things like that.
2: You've recently done a deal um, coming back to the deal that you did with investing in the rice cultivation. You've been able to garner some really big names in the investment space like um, Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is backed by Bill Gates and Tomasek. What did you guys do to build that to convince um, these like blue chip investors to come along on that journey and understand the potential for investing in rice decarbonization?
3: Yeah so I think the first thing to say is it wasn't you know wasn't us trying to convince these 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 folks to come on board it was really a joint team effort of hey you know rice is this big driver of of emissions on a global scale what might uh, a venture approach to tackling this challenge look like so i would say that you know as a team we really came together to to try and uncover Um, you know, what we, what we thought would be, you know, potential levers to make a change here. And it's still very, we're still very early in this process. Um, We're, you know, our, our goal is, is to have an MVP by midway through next year. So, you know, we're, we're on the ground, we're, we're running experiments with farmers. We are, um, you know, trialing different business models to see, you know, what, what will actually incentivize farmers to change behavior. So we're, I would say it's very much a process of figuring it out together. You know, the the, the challenge with rice cultivation is that it's really a regional story. And, um, you know, what works in one part of Indonesia probably won't work in another part of Indonesia, let alone in Vietnam or in India. So so what having this, these fantastic co-investors on board means is that we're able to take a uh, a more kind of regional view or a multi-country or multi-region view earlier than we would normally be able to do um, if it was just a build that we were doing ourselves.
2: And I'm, I imagine that would obviously give you com- comfort around how the potential for scaling these technologies to other region and and building a globally scalable startup quite quickly, right? Quite hands on in in how you get involved with helping founders build, get to product market fit, and scale their startup. Can you talk? Can you give us some live examples of how you get involved from an investor perspective and in really help helping companies? build build their solution and take it to market?
3: Yeah, so I think what we do as a part of the venture build process is we really look to de-risk the ventures that we, we ultimately invest in. And when we look at the risks associated with any business model, we typically look at three types of risk. The first is desirability. So does, does the customer actually want this solution and are they willing to pay for it? Um, the second is um, feasibility. Um, so, you know, can we deliver on? Can we build a tech stack? Can we bu- build a product? Can we build a solution that can deliver on the value proposition to customers? And then the third is viability. So, can you cr- do this within a, a, a unit economics that that makes sense and enables you to be to to build a scalable and profitable business? Um, and uh, so those are those are the ways that we really focus in the venture build process on de-risking the ventures that we that we invest in. Um and, and that's the kind of I would say the 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 crux of of, of our process. Um and, and ultimately how we help our, our companies get to, to, to launch and then and to product market fit. So I'll give you an example of one of our companies, WasteX, which is looking to help SME agri-producers in the region create more value out of their waste streams in a climate kind of positive way. Um, and so Pavel, our founder there, because we did so much work on understanding stakeholders, on understanding the value proposition and building kind of a, a, a viable business model that addresses those customer pain points, um, he's been able to sign up seven pilot customers in less than six month period and, you know, launching trials in uh, three different countries in the region at the moment. So, so, you know, that's, that's an example of, of how our investment in the venture build process helps our companies move faster um, later in the process.
1: Amazing. No, that's this really interesting point. And I think like that was something that I You know, I hadn't heard the idea of venture builder before, only VC. So I think like, yeah, you've explained that really well.
2: Looking at the supply side, the funding side, right? Less than 2% of venture capital funding goes towards female founders. And that's on a global basis. What is being done from from the venture builder, from the VC perspective to change the game? And obviously I think having more women at decision-making levels on the funding side will make a difference in terms of how you look at investment or investment theses or curating um, deals for investments, right? But what do you think can be done to really shift the dial from the investment perspective? Yeah, so, you
3: know, I don't, I don't know that, that the VC community is looking at this hard enough. I think maybe it's just starting to come on, on the radar. Um, so I don't, I think this is probably an industry that, that suffers from sort of, I would almost say like structural inequality. And again, not because anybody was trying to create like a super in unequal capital system. Um, I, I think it, it's, 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 it's much more benign or like, you know, well-intentioned than that. Right. It's, it's, it's just that the, that, you know, people feel affinity naturally for people who come from the same background as them, who have the, you know, are, are the same gender as them, you know, is it, is there any, you know, is it's no different from the fact that, you know, um, we all love founders that come from Stanford and, you know, a lot of VCs come from Stanford, you know, or IVs. you know, it's, it's that kind of like, it's, it's just a natural human thing to, to feel affinity for people that are like you and come from similar backgrounds. And so I, I think that the only way that we will drive kind of systematic change in this is to get more diversity in um, ICs and, in, and in, in investment decision makers. So I don't know what the right answer to that is, but but I, I you know, for example, when we hire, and um, I leverage my network um, to to reach out to potential hires, my network just naturally includes more women, and the networks of my fellow founding partners just naturally include more men. And is that because they hate men, uh, women, and I hate men? Absolutely not. Right? It's just it's just um, that's just the networks that you tend you 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 belong to. So so I just believe that the way to get more diversity around the table is to get more diversity at a decision-making level, and then that will open up opportunities that, that would otherwise be missed.
1: Amazing. I think that's a great way to wrap up, Marie. Um, and I do think we need a lot more diversity at the top because that's how we bring change. And and even for like women and people of color, I suppose that also helps them look up to role models and things like that that's so important um i know we've got limited time so i wanted to thank you so much for being part of the first episode of the green fluence and the recalibrate podcast series i think for me personally i I learned a lot about um your journey and and how that idea of climate changed over time um the idea of venture building and that idea of business of business model innovation and how um from a vc financial lens you can create change and you don't need to be a scientist I guess, as you mentioned, to make an impact. And that's something that, that I guess, Pavina and I also trying to do. So I think you're a great inspiration for us and thank you so much for your time.
3: Oh, thank you so much for having me and I'm glad to be guest number one. So wish you all the best with the rest of your series.
0: How did you find our first episode? Marie is just brimming with knowledge about the VC and startup space. I now see the importance of shifting perspectives when looking at business model innovation as it's not only about understanding the technology, but more importantly, the drivers that will drive behavioral change or drive the adoption of the existing technologies. I hope episode one of GreenFluence and Recalibrate's miniseries has been insightful and encouraging for you. We'd like to thank our podcast editor, Tanisha Wong, for all her hard work in creating this episode. If this is your first time listening, thank you for joining us. And please feel welcome to listen to our previous episodes. If you're a regular listener, thank you again for listening in. The Green Influence and Recalibrate team would love to hear from you. If you'd like to get in touch and become a part of the Green Fluence and Recalibrate team, check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Instagram. Links are in the show notes. We'd appreciate it if you'd leave us a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform. We'll catch you in the next episode. Wow.